Well, good morning, Westridge. I'm glad you've chosen to join us this morning for worship and for teaching. And we're in the second week of this series we lost, launched last week in the book of Philippians that I'm calling The Pursuit of Happiness. And this morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite sections in the book of Philippians, the beginning of chapter 2. There Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit and one in mind. And now he jumps into the core of why he said all of this before, when in verse 3 Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Paul's primary concern as he writes this section to the church in Philippi was social, not cerebral. He's basically saying to them, you can be a Christ follower, and you can experience the comfort, the love, the tenderness, and the compassion of Jesus. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit and still be a contentious, argumentative person intent on clawing your way to the top. His case in point was two women that he'll talk about in chapter 4, two women who were leaders in the church, two women who had an integral role in helping him start the church in Philippi. They had worked side by side with Paul, and now... They were locked in just such a dispute, and it was impacting the entire community. Paul begs them. He pleads with them, and in the process of doing so, he teaches us some valuable lessons. If we truly want to be happy in this life, we're going to have to lose selfish ambition. We're going to have to choose humility. And we're going to have to choose to live our lives focused on others instead of ourselves. So the words that Paul has written and is yet to write down here are about to be a game changer for these Christians in Philippi. He was, what he was asking them to do flew in the face of their rugged individualism and their achievement culture. To make his point... Paul now pulls in what most scholars believe was an early hymn of the church, a song they may have sung in their gatherings. And while it has deep theological truths, it also ties in with it cultural references that would have been significant for the church at Philippi. So what we're going to look at next may very well be our first contemporary Christian worship song. These seven verses we're going to look at comprise my favorite passage in all of the New Testament. And as I was studying it this week, I will be honest, I geeked out a little bit. I mean, I've taught on this passage many times before. I've thoroughly researched it. I've loved it and read it for decades. I've even memorized this passage. I love it so much. And still, what I came across in my study this week was new to me. I didn't know this about the passage about how this hymn brings in the rich texture of the culture for an 
an explanation of what Jesus did for us when he came to this earth. And so I'd be remiss without saying I'm deeply indebted to a friend and a pastor, John Ortberg, for his research on this uh, in my message this morning. Roman culture was in and of itself oriented around the idea of social status and recognition. So much so that if I were a part of Roman culture and I moved up in status, it would bring honor to me and to my family. By the same token, if I moved down in status, it would bring shame. To keep track of this cultural movement, the Romans had very specific categories to help clearly show what a person's status was in the community. Now, the primary division of this social status was between the elites and the non-elites, between the ultra-rich and powerful and the poor. And there were sublayers in each one of these categories. At the very bottom of the social stratosphere were slaves. Now, they may not have been exactly what you think of when you hear the word slave. In Paul's day, if I owed a debt that I could not pay, I would end up being someone's slave and working off that debt. And when I did, I would be released. Slaves had no status and no honor, and tons of shame. One level above the slave would have been the freed men. They weren't slaves, they didn't have many rights, but at least they weren't a slave. The next highest category of the non-elites would have been citizens of the Roman Empire. Citizens had rights that neither the slaves nor the freed men had. The upper class had three layers to it as well. The lowest class would have been the equestrians. And as you might guess, these were men who had enough money to buy and maintain and care for a horse, and then they would ride that horse in parades and into battle. One level above the equestrians was a very select group, a much, much smaller group, the Roman senators. And then, of course, the final layer had one person. It was the emperor of Rome, Caesar. Now, that's the ladder everyone was trying to climb of social status and honor. And everything in their society was designed to keep people in their place and to let people know what place you were in. For example, even their clothing pointed to the status. If you were a freedman, there was a special cap that you got to wear. Now, granted, it might have been a dorky hat, but you'd wear it because it pointed to your status. You might not be a senator, but you're certainly not a slave. If you were a citizen, now that's where the first real perk came in. You got to wear a toga. Freedmen and slaves couldn't do it. It was a status symbol to walk around in a toga in Roman culture. If you were an equestrian, you not only got to wear a toga, you got a gold ring to put on your finger. James chapter 2, verse 2 actually mentions that ring and supports what Paul is writing here about status in the culture. In the book of James, James writes, Don't show favoritism to a man who comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. In other words, don't value an equestrian over a citizen, a freedman, or a slave in God's kingdom. Senators not only got to wear the gold ring, 
but they got to wear a special toga that had a purple stripe in it. It was status. It was honor. And you wore it even if you didn't like the color purple. And of course, Caesar at the top of the ladder wore whatever he wanted and did whatever he wanted. He didn't fit into the system. Let me give you one more example. Even the Roman legal system was designed to reinforce status. Your rights, your punishment would vary greatly depending on your status in Rome. Acts chapter 16 tells us the story of the beginning of this church in Philippi, and status comes into play. Paul and Silas, his uh, partner in ministry, were planting that church, and they did some things that got them arrested. The guards took Paul and Silas to jail. Uh, Acts 16 says they were beaten with rods, taken into the prison, put in stocks, and locked up. The next morning, the authorities took a closer look at the charges against Paul and Silas and decided to let them go. And that is when Paul brought up the fact that he and Silas were actually Roman citizens. Non-citizens, slaves, it was routine to take them in a back room and just beat them within an inch of their life, whether they were guilty or not, and before they had a trial. But if you're a citizen... You get a trial first. They can't touch you. They can put you in jail, but they can't touch you until you have your trial. So when these authorities realized Paul and Silas were, in fact, Roman citizens, they knew that they had broken the law. They were in danger of being arrested and beaten. They were in big trouble because they had violated not just Paul's rights, but his status. When they heard it, they hurried to the prison. They apologized to him. They begged him for forgiveness. <laughs> and, and then they begged him to hurriedly leave town so it didn't create a stir. The most dishonoring punishment of all was to be hung on a cross. That punishment was generally reserved for the worst criminals and for slaves. Because its purpose wasn't just to kill you as punishment. It was in the process to dishonor you and bring shame not just to you, but to your family. One historian says the idea of crucifixion was so obscene in the Roman culture, so disgusting, that to say the word crucifixion was just not something you did in polite company. For the Romans, status and honor were everything. It guided how they lived and how they worked and how they rose in the culture. They would use any advantage they had to climb to the next rung on the ladder. And then, occasionally, they would lose status. You might commit a crime and lose status. You might lose all your wealth and lose status. And you would be dropped, generally, to a lower level within your class. And in the worst cases, you'd be dropped a whole separate class. The Romans had a special phrase for that. To lose status was be called being humbled. And that's where that phrase originated. It was always viewed as a tragedy. Nobody ever volunteered to be humble. And philosophers of that day said it was better to have never had status and honor at all than to have it and lose it. 
Status and honor were a huge deal in the city of Philippi itself. In fact, historians have found more inscriptions, more titles, more offices describing status and honor, more docu documentation on honor than any other city in the Roman Empire. And so you were expected to talk about your status and your honor. It was deeply ingrained in the values of the people there. Now, I doubt very few of you woke up this morning and said to yourself, I hope I get a history lesson at church today, right? That's just not what you were looking for. So here's why all of this matters. Those cultural items are deeply embedded in this hymn that Paul quotes. His ideas are loaded with the ideas from status and honor, and everyone would recognize them. But since we didn't have that cultural context, we would miss them. It's still a beautiful passage without it, but the depth and the texture of it is so much more with that context. Listen now, you may recognize this passage. Starting with verse 5, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus' status was above senators. It was even above Caesar. Paul says he was the God of the universe. It's a whole different class. And yet to Jesus, Paul says, his status wasn't anything. It wasn't something he would leverage to his advantage. It wasn't something he would climb over or use to power up on others. Rather, Paul says, Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That word servant is a weak translation of the word that's in the Greek. In the original language, the word is the same word used for the slaves, that class of citizen. Paul says, Jesus gave up his position of status, and entered our world at the lowest rung. No rights, no status, no honor. He goes on in verse 8 and says, Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus' entry into humanity, his humbling was all of his own doing, all of his own choosing. It was unheard of in Roman culture. No one volunteered for a downgrade. I've flown a lot. I've never seen anybody stand up in first class and go, could you downgrade me to coach, please? It just doesn't happen. Far more significant than that, Jesus said, I will lower myself. I will go to earth. And he became obedient, Paul says. Romans hated that word obedient. It was a word of weakness. It was a word that you used with a child, not a position of status. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only took on the lowest status, he endured the most humiliating, dishonoring, painful death known in the Roman world. And they were masters at capital punishment. The Lord of all became a crucified slave. Now that 
first part of that passage from 5 through 8 talks about Jesus' actions, how he humbled himself for us. The second part, God steps in. God acts. The one who is above Caesar is now going to honor the one who chose to be lower than a slave. The hymn goes on and Paul writes it out to say, therefore God exalted him. It's actually a word that only occurs here in the Greek. It's super exalted. It's a superlative God super exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans believe that honor isn't honor unless it's public. And so Paul says in, on one day there will be honor for this one who chose to die as a slave. There will be honor from every rational being, living or dead, angelic or demonic. Every one of them will take a knee and bow to Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. Now let me remind you where this whole hymn started, where the dialogue with the church at Philippi started. Paul referenced this hymn about Jesus to show us that the road to joy lies not in selfish ambition, but in selfless surrender. The call to surrender is no more popular today than it was to the Roman culture. But what is modeled for us here is Jesus being humble and serving. Jesus calls us to live an others-focused life. Jesus himself said it this way in Luke 9, 23. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Whatever we think our status is, whatever we think are our rights or our privileges, whatever honor we think is due us, Jesus says every single day when you wake up, set that aside, pick up your cross, Humble yourself and become a servant. Now, I'm guessing that by now, every one of you is more than familiar with this. Personally, I hate them. <laughs> I don't know if you're there with me. I hate these masks. I know some of you, I've seen you, you have really cute, highly stylized masks, and they look good on you, as good as a mask looks. I have a box of 50 of these sitting right by my front door. Well, 49 now. I hate them. When I wear them, my glasses fog up. I have just this week figured out after, what is it, five months now of wearing these, how to take it off without catching the strap on my glasses and flinging them across the room. I hate them. And here's the real pain of it all. I had no idea how bad my breath was by the end of the day until I wore a mask. You with me? But here's the thing. Even though I hate them, I've been wearing one every single day since the middle of March. Why? Well, as I understand it, my mask really doesn't protect me. It protects you from me. 
The benefit to me of wearing a mask is nominal. The benefit to you, to you, is huge. When I wear a mask, I'm choosing to value your health, your well-being, your future, more than I value my rights, my privileges, and my freedom. When we do that, we are living out what Paul told the Philippians. In humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. Now, 10 years from now, we may look back on this pandemic and laugh at just how silly we were to wear the masks and think that they protected us. That's a possibility, right? But I promise you, 10 years from now, when I'm looking back at family pictures and we all had masks on in this era, I'm not going to look back and feel silly or stupid for having loved others more than I love myself, for putting their health and their well-being above my own. Now, look, maybe the mask thing is too politicized, maybe it's too polarizing, maybe it just doesn't make sense to you, and that's okay. That's all I could think about as an application for me as I work through this passage. I would love for you to do that too, to think through the implications of not thinking about your own interests and thinking about others. Figure out where these passages do apply in your life. Think about it hard. Are there any areas in your life where consciously or unconsciously you're putting your interests, your wishes, your freedoms over someone else? Ask God to search your heart. If you pray and ask God to search your heart and point out where it is that you're out of line, he'll do it. I promise you. If you're willing to take a risk beyond that, grab a friend. Grab a close coworker. Ask them, are there places in my life where I seem selfish, where I force my way over your way? If you want to take a bigger risk, ask a family member. Ask your spouse, your significant other. Want a big risk? Ask your kids little or grown, to give you input on how you're doing in this area. Ask someone who knows you well and will speak truth to you about where you can grow in your walk with Christ and imitating his selfless serving of others. Do the hard work. Grow in your walk with Jesus. Because what Paul is teaching us here is what I said earlier. If we truly want to be happy in this life, we have to lose selfish ambition. We have to choose humility. We have to choose to live our lives focused on others, not ourselves. Would you pray with me? God, this is hard. I mean, I can think of examples in my own life from today and from this week where I put my thoughts, my wishes, my preferences over others. 
I'm guessing every one of us can, God. We are so driven. We are so independent. We are so success-oriented. God, help us to learn how to walk and to serve just as humbly, to live as humbly as Jesus did, to do that in our homes and in our work and in all our relationships. God, create in us hearts of humble servants so that we might find your joy in this life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.